Today we begin the book of Isaiah. It is 66 chapters. For reference, the last couple series that I did over the winter were about 30 or 40 chapters. And if you felt like those are fast, better put a seatbelt on. Because <laughs> we have until about Easter. Um, my plan currently, there's a, a prayer Sunday that might get thrown into the mix there. We're still in the works of that. The current plan, though, is that the week, two weeks before Easter will be our last sermon in Isaiah, and then the week before Easter will be a Q&A, which I'm really, we're going to need the Q&A because I am going to probably be flying over a lot of stuff. And please, because of that, if I do not address something in the chapters that we were talking about, if you think of it even right away that week, like that day, you can catch me after service, be like, hey, like, can you, can you talk about this later with the Q&A? Um, so definitely keep tab of that stuff and let me know, but we will be moving through this book. As I've studied the book, though, I feel that especially for the first time that we go through this book as a church, it is best to do more of a survey so we can get our feet under us, so we can understand what the message is as a whole, and also see how the pieces of the book fit together that make to make sure that we are understanding each piece in context. Isaiah also contains a lot of poetry, oracles, woes, chiasms. If you don't know what any of that means, we'll get there. It contains a lot of literary features, all that to say, that are honestly most clearly understood when seen as a whole. There are groupings that happen. There are, I think one of the sermons I'm going to do is like seven chapters, but the reason for that is that it is a series of woes that are meant to give one overarching message. And so I'm I'm actually glad that we are addressing the book this way because it's going to help us see how all of these pieces fit together. Many of us are likely very familiar with many or at least some of the verses um, or chapters of Isaiah, such as chapter 53 and the suffering servant, or especially this month, um, chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or chapter 7, verse 14, and the prophecy of the virgin birth. Or maybe chapter 40, verse 31, But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, and shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Or maybe as we read earlier, and as we will address um, later in the sermon today, chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and though they are red like, crim like crimson, they shall become like wool. Or maybe 26, verse 3, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I could keep going. There are a lot of really amazing verses and chapters in Isaiah, but I think you get the point. Isaiah is a masterpiece. It has some of the most well-known, most beautiful, most witty, most encouraging, and most scathing rhetoric in the Bible. Isaiah has been called the Shakespeare of the prophets and the St. Paul of the Old Testament. It is quoted more than any other Old Testament book by the New Testament authors. It has been called a mini-Bible by many due to the arrangement of its material and how the first 39 chapters and the last 27 chapters bear some striking similarities to the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. To be fair, though, the chapter divisions are, were added later. They were not original, and the order of the 66 books is not inspired. So take that all with a grain of salt. Uh, but it's still pretty cool. My goal for these next few months is to humbly offer a taste of the majesty of this book and to help us better understand the pieces that we might know very well, 
but maybe seeing them in light of the context in which they fit will help us to understand them even better. There is much that I sadly will not have time for, but I am confident that even a survey of this book will prove to be an encouragement and a challenge and cause us to adore and glorify the God that Isaiah's masterful writing seeks to put on display. Before we begin working through the book, a little background information is going to be helpful. First, who is Isaiah? This one is actually not as straightforward or as detailed as you might think or hope for. Because honestly, we are not given many many details about who he is here or even elsewhere in the Bible. We do not read, in fact, even of his call to ministry until chapter 6. We'll get back to why later. But we will see, um, we do have some details of his father, who was Amos. Um, if, who The Bible honestly like, literally just tells us that he was the father of Isaiah. We don't know anything else. But Jewish tradition claimed that his father was the brother of Amaziah, king of Judah, which would then put Isaiah, not directly, but like, through relations, into the royal line. Um, this is not certain, but it is Jewish tradition. And then chapters 7 through 8, we know that Isaiah was a husband and a father who likely lived in Jerusalem. Um, we see in Second Chronicles 26, 22, and by the way, I am going to mention Second Chronicles 25, 26 to like 32, and also Second Kings, um, I think 15 to the low, low to mid-20s. Like, if you want to get some historical context for Isaiah, those would be two really good sections to read. Uh, but anyways, back to this. So, Second Chronicles 26:22 indicates that Isaiah also wrote a historical book, book about King Uzziah. Um, this work is now lost, but the fact that he knew enough to write a book about King Uzziah tells us a bit about the sort of social standing that Isaiah had. He had access to have that information. And then, lastly, in Hebrews 11:37, when it mentions that some martyrs were sawn in two, this may allude to the Jewish tradition of Isaiah's death by being sawn in half, which not to get too gory, but according to the accounts, it's with a wooden saw, too. Um, but being sawn in half under the persecution of King Manasseh of Judah, which, when we get into the history, this will make more sense later, but King Manasseh is not mentioned at all in Isaiah. He is the king after the last king that is mentioned in the book of Isaiah. And we'll, we'll get there in a little bit with all the historical context. So with that, actually, when did Isaiah minister? And I'm hoping this is actually on here. Um, so we are going to do a little historical context. And my clicker is not doing anything. So Caleb will help me with that. Um, I was looking at Caleb's historical timeline that he made for his Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah series. And thank you. And the book of Isaiah actually fits very nicely right at the beginning and kind of just before because he didn't actually have like a timestamp of the first events in the book of Isaiah, but um, it actually fits right at the beginning of that. Because in Caleb's series, the events of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah took place during the Persian Empire. So that is, um, in, in, on your side here, the, the Persian Empire is the yellow one, and then you have the Babylonian in blue, and then the Assyrian in the orange. Um, so Caleb focused mostly on the Persian and the Babylonian empires. And the Babylonian Empire had conquered Judah and deported many of its citizens, with the first deportation happening around 605. And then Cyrus of, or Cyrus of Persia declared in 539 that the exiles could return. And Caleb's series focused ma- mainly on the events of that timeline. So here's like the overarching timeline, 
And then he zoomed in and kind of gave us some historical context of the, the book of Daniel works into the middle to the late, later half of the timeline there. And then you have Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, some of the prophets. So like this is where Caleb focused. What we're actually going to do, and apparently I like to do because I did Leviticus and then I went back into Exodus, is we're going backwards. And we're now going on to the beginning part of that timeline. So you, you see how the first kind of date stamp on here is 722 and what happened to the northern tribes of Israel? Because one thing we also need to really keep in mind as we're reading Isaiah is by this point you already had the split of the entire Israel into the northern tribes and the southern tribes. So you have a lot of talk about that and like referencing who, um, you kind of got to keep track of who's being mentioned. And also one thing that come up a lot is Ephraim is a shorthand way of referring to the ten tribes. Um, and also Samaria is as well. So we'll get to all that later. Um, but all that to say, by this point, you have the ten northern tribes, which are referred to as Israel, and then the southern tribes, which are southern two tribes, which are referred to as Judah. Um, so we are at the beginning of the timeline, and we are going to be um, dealing with the events that happened during the Assyrian Empire, which was dominant from 744 to 612 BC, as you see there on the timeline. As we see in Isaiah 1, verse 1, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he is in the southern kingdom. So you got to keep that in mind through the whole book. His ministry spanned the reigns of four kings during the Assyrian Empire. Chapter 6-1 tells us that his call to ministry came in the year that King Uzziah died, which is around 740 BC. So if, if you can read it up there, the Assyrian Empire, you see how that starts, like, becomes dominant, like, just before King Uzziah's death, that that's important. We'll get we'll get there. Um, but 740 is kind of the marker for where the events of the book start. And the death of Uzziah, who is by the way called Azariah in Second Kings, if you go read that for context, um, so he goes by both names, Uzziah or Azariah. Um, that marks the end of a period of Ju- Judean power and prosperity. At this time, the long weakened Assyrian Empire begins to reemerge. So again, just before King Uzziah died, you have the reemergence of the Assyrian Empire. And around this time, so around the time of Uzziah's death, the Assyrian Empire took the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, all northern tribes. Um, he took them into exile, as we read in 1 Chronicles 5, verse 26. So the beginning of Isaiah's ministry comes at a turning point in history. You have the reemergence of the Assyrian Empire, and you have their invasion and exile of some of the northern tribes. And this should be a warning to Judah as far as the path that they're heading down and what might happen to them as well. This time period, this around 740, this also comes at a spiritual turning point as well for the people of Judah. We read in 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 26 that Uzziah reigned for 52 years. He had a long reign. And he did, by and large, what was right in God's sight. That is what we read as he was characterized by doing what was right. But we also read, specifically told us, that he didn't take down the high places where the people were making improper offerings. We read that, and like we almost read it in passing in a lot of these kings that are mentioned in Israel and Judah. But why is that so important? The people were supposed to be worshiping at one place in the way that God told them. So by not taking down high places, what kings were doing was allowing the people to be practicing improper worship, which also 
most often quickly morphed into not only improper worship of God, but worship of other gods as well. So when you read that, that a king didn't take down the high places, that's not something just pass over. That's actually a much bigger deal than you might think it is because of what it usually led to. And we're about to see what it led to. So we see that he, again, in general did what's right, but he didn't take down the high places. And then in Second Chronicles 26, we read that Uzziah, that when he was strong and grew proud, because remember, the death of Uzziah marks a turning point. There was a Judean period of power and prosperity. So guess what happened when he became powerful and prosperous? He became prideful. That's kind of a recurring theme throughout the Bible. So he became proudful. He, When he was strong, he grew proud and to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. He tried to burn incense on the altar of incense, though he was not a priest. That kind of sounds like something else I talked about in one of my other series about the sons of Aaron doing something similar to that, which I explained at that time. Basically what that means is that they felt they had the right to have access to God in their way. That's what, that's exactly what Uzziah is trying to do too. That's how proudful he had become. He was struck with a skin disease for this rebellion and he had to live in isolation for the last few years of his life with his son Jotham, the second of the four kings on the list given by Isaiah. Jotham was co-ruling with him for a few years. After the death of Uzziah, Jotham then ruled for only a few years on his own. We read that he ruled, I think, 16 years and about 10 of those years were with Uzziah because Uzziah hadn't passed away yet from the skin disease and his health issues, and then a few years on his own. So there's some overlap there. We are told in 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 27 that he also did what was right in God's sight for the most part, but guess what he also didn't do? He didn't take down the high places. And the people continued to give improper offerings and were given even an extra detail that we not, that they not only did improper offerings, but they also followed corrupt practices. You see the describers keep adding on as the kings don't take down the high places. The, descri- the description of what is happening keeps getting longer. This paves the way for his son, Ahaz. So now we're on the third king. You have Uzziah, and then Jotham, and then Ahaz. We don't really hear much about Jotham, by the way. You'll find throughout the book of Isaiah, and that's because he had such a short reign. By the death of Uzziah, by that time, it's only like five or six years later that Jotham then also passes away, and then you're on to Ahaz. So Ahaz and Hezekiah are actually the primary, um, mostly Ahaz, by the way. Those are the two that we're going to encounter the most in Isaiah. Um, But this paves the way for Jotham's son Ahaz to take the people even further into rebellion and corruption. We read in 2 Kings 16 and then also 2 Chronicles 28 that Ahaz did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of the king of Israel. And we get a lot of descriptors about what happens during his reign. It was one descriptor that the people did improper offerings during Uzziah's reign. Then we get two descriptors during um, Jotham's reign that they did improper offerings and corrupt practices. And then Ahaz, you get like a whole chapter of what's going on. Because not only are the people doing it, but he is characterized by doing what is evil. We're told that he is characterized by basically doing what the kings of the northern tribes are doing. Remember the northern tribe that literally had just been punished with three um, of the tribes being taken into exile? And then look at that timestamp of what's about to come. Yeah, those, those kings that God is judging. Those are the kings that Ahaz is copying with what he's doing. So we read in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28 that Ahaz did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. 
even, again, just as, like I said, they were facing judgment. He made images of Baal and false offerings. He used fortune-telling, omens, sorcery, and mediums, and burned his sons as offerings. Basically, he followed the worst practices of the kings of the other nations. And it seems, like you read that, and it's like, okay, that almost feels like a random list at times. Basically, what's being communicated is he was seeking other gods. Because most of those things, fortune-tellings, omens, sorcery, those are all ways of seeking divine assistance. That's not ways of seeking divine assistance from the God of Israel that he taught them. So he is seeking divine assistance from other gods and doing it everything improperly. So that's what's being communicated through this list here. It is to Ahaz that many of Isaiah's prophecies are given to warn him where his path will lead the nation and to warn him against making foolish allegiances. Because during this time... Israel, again, the northern tribes, Israel, Syria, Judah, and many of the surrounding nations were vassal states of the Assyrian Empire. So not fully conquered yet. I mean, the northern tribes, some of them had been exiled, but it wasn't full destruction, um, full disintegration yet. Um, so a lot of these surrounding nations, Judah, Israel included, were actually basically just paying tribute to Assyria. As basically like, if you're loyal to us and pay tribute and do what we tell you to do, we're not going to wipe you out. Well, during this time, there were a lot of attempts to throw off Assyrian rule. So many of the events we read throughout the book of Isaiah refer to various alliances or attempted alliances and attempts to throw off Assyrian rule both during Ahaz's time and the time of Hezekiah. And we're going to find out these usually did not end well for the people trying to have alliances against Assyria. There is one time that does end well. We'll we'll get to that one. Um, But we read in 2 Kings 18 through 20, and then Second Chronicles 29.32, that Hezekiah, the next king, did what was right in the sight of the Lord and led many spiritual reforms to Judah. But just like Uzziah, he also became prideful near the end of his life. And we'll see that in chapters 37 to 39. During Hezekiah's time, the nation of Israel was conquered after the northern tribes were conquered. So that timestamp there, 722. During Hezekiah's time was when that happened. After um, being besieged for three years is when that happened. So about 725 is when they began, uh, Assyria began to besiege the, the city, Samaria, of the northern tribes. And then 722 is when they were fully conquered. About 20 years after this, so about 700, is when Hezekiah attempted to throw off Assyrian rule of Judah, which I know who thought that was a good idea. Uh, but we'll see there. That's actually the one time that things do go well. Um, but he escaped destruction and deportation only through the direct help of God, as we see in chapter 39. But we also read in chapter 39, I'm sorry, actually the deliverance is back in 37, I think. But we read in chapter 39 that this is but a delay of the inevitable due to the rebellion of Judah and of its leaders. Because even in 39, we're going to see a failing of Hezekiah. The deportation and exile happen after Isaiah's lifetime. As you see on the timeline there, Isaiah's long off the scene by the time Judah is actually exiled. But chapters 40 to 66 look ahead to what God has told him and shown him is coming, and he pleads with the people to trust God, even in exile, to trust God for restoration. The order of these events that I just went through is not always, is not always obvious as you read through Isaiah, um, but that is the general timeline. Uh, the book is arranged according to what Isaiah is trying to communicate through the message. A lot of the prophecies and sayings and uh, different literary structures that I talked about, a lot of them don't actually have a timestamp, but what's being given is a building message that is happening through the book of Isaiah. As we work through the book, um, we will see this arrangement, and we will see what he is seeking to accomplish. So as a very, very high level, 
outline. I was tempted to put more on here, but I figure um, nobody's going to remember it anyway, um, myself included, as we're trying to work through. So I'm going to stick with just the major sections here. Um, so as far as a brief outline of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 5, um, you can call it the situation or the preface. It is the failure of Judah and the seeming forfeiture of the promises. And we'll get to that why I worded it that way. But basically, in 1 through 5, you actually have a backdrop to what the situation is that Isaiah is ministering to. And that's actually why you do not read of his call to ministry until chapter 6, because he wants you to have five chapters to just know kind of the the type of situation he's being called into and that he's going to minister throughout his life. Also, because of that, I don't think it's necessarily entirely accurate to think that 1 through 5 specifically address the situation that he was called into. I think they're more of an overarching thing, especially like a lot of what you read is like, wow, that sounds like during Ahaz's time. Um, so I think it's more of like an overall backdrop to his ministry at large. Um, so that's the preface. Chapters 1 through 5, and then chapters 6 through 39 are the promise. So you have this seeming failure and the seeming forfeiture of the promises. These these chosen people that God has given so many promises to is in this uh, coming son, or this coming king, and it seems like they've chosen to forfeit them. So in 6 through 39, we then have this promise that is given to these people. There seems to be a continuing failure of the Davidic king, but yet we also have a promise of a true king. So the section can also be called the king. Um, and then in 40 to 55, um, you have, after the section of 6 to 39, which ends with the failure of the Davidic king, and 39 also ends with the promise of exile. So you have this, this promise that's given, this king, and then you end 6 to 39 with basically this question is like, okay, is the promise done? Like, you just told us we're going into exile. Is that the end? Then you have an answer in 40 to 55. And the answer is that the sin of the people will be borne by a sin-bearing servant. So this description of a king now morphs into a description of a servant in the next section. And we see, wrapped throughout all of it, that it's actually the same person that it's talking about. And then in the next section, we have um, what you could call the end. It is the call to live in obedience and righteousness while waiting for the final victory that is brought by this king servant. And that's why you can also refer to him as the conqueror. And throughout this whole book, you see this beautiful picture of these three overarching themes, the king, the servant, the conqueror, beautifully woven together to point to the fact that that's all the same person. So that is a very brief outline of the book of Isaiah. What I want to look at today is uh, chapters 1 verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. And you'll see under that heading a microcosm of the book of Isaiah. Uh, basically, it's a summary of the book of Isaiah. You have in 1, 1 through 2, 5, you have like a little sampling of what the entire book of Isaiah is going to be. So as you look to 1, 1 to 2, 5, let's start in um, 1, 1. And right in the beginning, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. We've already talked about this introduction and talked about the kings, kind of the general timeline, so I'm not going to say anything more about the names that we see here. But I want to just point out something and also give just a reminder as we start through these chapters. We see a heading in 1-1, and then we also, kind of surprisingly, see a heading again in 2-1. Because if you skip forward to chapter 2, verse 1, you're going to see the word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So it's like a shorter heading, but basically the same thing. Um, 
What you don't see in either of them is a timestamp. It's just a, a vision or a word. It's like, okay, like, well, when did that happen? It, the when is actually not the point. Because again, one through five is all a building backdrop to the ministry of Isaiah. So all the verses, chapters one through five, um, under both headings, are actually best con- best seen as a, a building argument of basically saying what's going on. And one of the one of the main evidences of this is what I just said, that there's no time step given. It isn't like this is the word of Isaiah at such and such time to such and such person. You don't see that until chapter 6 when you have the time stamp of in the year that King Uzziah died. Like that, that you see in chapter 6. You don't see that here in the first five chapters. And as you read through the first five chapters, you're actually only going to even see one specific foreign power even mentioned. And it's the Philistines. And even then, it's not like a, the Philistines are doing X, Y, Z. It's like, uh, I think it's fortune tellers like the Philistines. So it's even like just in a simile. So it's not even like really anything specific is given. It's very broad, very generic in these first five chapters. It seems best to understand that all of this context is meant to be a summary. And again, I think the best way to understand it is a summary of the entire ministry of Isaiah. So not necessarily like what he's coming into, but his entire ministry. In his time, he sees corruption and wickedness from Ahaz. He sees the prideful rebellion of even the good kings, Uzziah and Hezekiah. He sees the people and the rulers continuing to sin, rebel, and place their trust in things other than God. And if the Jewish tradition is correct, he was martyred by the next king. So this is a dark time. And that's what is being communicated through the first five chapters. Starting in verse 2 and going through the end of the chapter, I have, or sorry, we have what I think is best understood here as something that can, can be compared to the State of the Union speech by the president. The State of the Union speech is an opportunity for the president to review the past year's accomplishments and preview his agenda for the coming year. What's interesting, though, well, one, obviously America didn't exist yet at the writing of this, but read verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The Lord is about to give a State of the Union address to his people. And, spoiler, it's not pretty. It is not a good State of the Union speech. The State of the Union is bad. The speech can be broken up generally into three sections. The State of the Nation in in verses 2 through 9, the State of the Religion in 10 through 20, and the State of the Society in 21 to 31. Because they were already read as the scripture reading, I'm not going to reread them, so please feel free to follow along as I work through these verses. But first, in verses 2 through 9, the state of the nation. In 2 through 4, verses 2 through 4, God declares that his children, see there in verse 2, children that I have reared and brought up, they have rebelled against me. Children I have reared and brought up. Think of, this is, there's a lot of Old Testament before Isaiah. There's a lot of storyline before the time of Isaiah. Think of all God has done for his people. The children I reared and brought up. His chosen people have rebelled and become sinful people, no longer his children, but children of evildoers. Isaiah, by the way, is really good to slow down when you read. He is a wordsmith. You see him constantly take a word and then flip it and use it in just the next verse, um, either in an opposing way or in a developing way. It's, it's beautiful. If, if you if you love grammar and you you love 
um, words and poetry. Just slow down when you read Isaiah. Um, and maybe even sometimes read different translations. If you maybe aren't, sometimes the one English translation doesn't pick up on it quite well. Other translations will do it too. Kind of like read and compare. But anyways, it was children I reared and brought up. And then you go into verse four. So the children I've reared, they are now offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. And at the end of verse 4, they are utterly estranged. So basically, he is, my children have chosen to no longer be my children, is what he is doing with the, with the, with the words he's using here in 2 through 4. They have, um, at the second to last line in verse 4, they have despised or disparaged or considered as worthless the Holy One of Israel. And then in 5 through 9, he then describes the purpose of various judgments that they are going to face. And as you look through those verses, what you see is that the purpose of those judgments is actually to bring them to repentance, or at least to preserve a remnant who will repent. He then uses the language, um, or sorry, in, in verses 5 through 9, he uses the language of war and desolation to talk about their judgment. And then what's interesting is he, in uh, 5 through 8, you read about this uh, besieged city, this city lying desolate, burned with fire. Think the scorched earth war policy. You see this war and desolation context. But then in verse 9, you get, if the Lord of hosts, you have war language, but then it's rem- rem- reminded, or they are reminded that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, if he had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. So they will be desolated by armies, but the Lord of armies will make sure that a remnant survives. And he uses, he introduces this Sodom and Gomorrah language. Remember the cities that in Genesis were utterly destroyed. And he's going to pick that back up and use it to transition perfectly into his next section. Because the next section in verses 10 through 20 is the state of the religion. And look at how he begins verse 10. Remember, remember he's speaking to his people. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He, he's not mincing words at this point. Sodom and Gomorrah were words that symbolized complete rebellion against God, fit for judgment and destruction, and they are now used as the titles of his own people. In these verses, we see that the people are doing the habits of religion without the beliefs, the actions, or the love that the habits are to symbolize. This section is um, scathing, but beautifully written in its scathingness. As you read starting in 10, he calls them the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he says, what to me is this multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have, I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I cannot endure these two things coexisting. You are having solemn assemblies. You're doing the actions of religion, but your heart is the complete opposite of what it is supposed to be. 
Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's case. In 12 to 17, we find a message seen again in Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 23 to 24, in James's words in James 1, 26 to 27, that basically boil down to leave your offering until your life is an offering. The actions of worship themselves do not please God. In fact, he calls them an abomination if they are not accompanied by a heart that is worshiping him. They are a trampling in his courts without the heart of worship. To the people giving vain worship, he says, get out. Get out of my courts. Go do good. Go seek justice. Go correct oppression and go bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's case. That, that is the worship I want. I want your heart, not your actions. This is empty, vain, worthless worship to me. But what is amazing, and again, those, one of those verses that we know pretty well, but seeing it in its context makes it even more powerful. To these people, to the same people that he just gave this scathing report, he says in 18, Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. To these same people that he just said, get out. He also says, come. Come, let us reason. Though you are red as scarlet, you may be white. If you are willing and obedient, you shall have the blessing you seek. Because you see, in the ancient religions and the surrounding religions of the day, there wasn't actually necessarily really a relationship with the gods. The understanding was that if you do the right things, if you bring the right gifts, if you do the right actions and ceremonies, and have the right feasts, and do all these things properly, the God is basically obligated to give you the blessing that you seek. And what the God of Israel is saying is that that that's not going to work here. That's not how you get my blessing. You're seeking the blessing in the way that you know from the surrounding cultures, but that doesn't work with me because I can't be manipulated. What I ask is your heart. And if you have a heart like mine, then you will have a life that is blessed. The favor and the blessing that the people were seeking through empty worship is found only through willing obedience and a broken, humble heart. And then we get to verses 
21 to 31. And in this section, we have the state of the society. If you thought the religion was bad, the society is just as bad. Just as the imagery of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as a transition from the first section to the second section, so we see the call to seek justice and correct oppression to help the fatherless and the widows serves as a transition from the second section to the third section. Because if you look back in one sixteen and 17, it says, Wash yourself, cleanse yourself, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's case. And then what do you see then in verse 23 when he's talking about what is happening in the society? He says, your princes or your judges, probably a better way to understand that, your judges are rebels and, your compa- and, the, and companions of thieves. Every one, so all the people who are supposed to be giving justice, they all love a bribe and they and run after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's case does not come before them. So the condemnation he just gave as he's condemning the state of the religion hinges perfectly into what is exactly not happening in the society. We read in these verses that the faithful city, starting in 21, how how the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness used to lodge in her, but now just murderers. The faithful city has become unfaithful. Righteousness used to dwell in the city, but now it is full of murderers, rebels, and thieves. The leaders and the judges love bribes and gifts, and they do not help the fatherless or the widows, but only those who can pay them. In 24 to 26, we read that God will bring his hand of judgment against them. It says, therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, so again, the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel, oh, uh, sorry, uh, I will get relief from my enemies. Uh, What's interesting is you'd think that's talking about not Israel, that that's talking about Israel. Again, this this isn't a good State of the Union speech being given here. This isn't the State of the Union's bad. Uh, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my head, sorry, my hand against them, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness and the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. In 24 to 26, we read that God will bring his hand of judgments against them. But what's interesting is you'd think with all this Sodom and Gomorrah language that the judgment coming is destruction, complete destruction, because that's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But what's actually interesting is that judgment is not the end of the story here. The judgment is brought for the sake of refining and restoring. And then after this judgment, they will again be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The script somehow becomes reversed. And they will be restored through the judgment of God. And then in 27, we read, Zion will be redeemed or ransomed by justice and those in her who repents by righteousness. What this is saying is that God's standards, God's justice and his righteousness will be upheld by how the ransom and the restoration is accomplished. Keep in in mind that ransom theme as we work through Isaiah. There's there's the seed of a lot of themes that we're seeing here in 1, 1 through 2, 5. And then in 28 through 31, we read that the, the fine trees in the gardens... Um, which in the ancient world were symbols of life and strength and often locations of idol worship. Um, the strength and the idols 
of those who rebelled and forsook Yahweh. Basically, the things that they were going to for strength and life and hope and security, all of those things will fail them. We read in 28 to 31, Rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender in the work of spark, and both them, both of them shall burn together, and none of them, and none to quench them. The, the things they were looking to for hope and for security and strength fail. You think of an oak as a strong tree, but we read that you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. In a garden, garden is supposed to be placed with water and lush plants. Garden, but you'll be like a garden without water. Only trust in God will lead to salvation and restoration. Again and again, we see interwoven into this, into these sections in chapter 1, much promise of judgment, but greater yet, we see promises of salvation and restoration to those who place their hope in God. We see again and again, judgment is not the end of the story. And then in 2, 1 through 5, I know I'm dipping into the next Few ver- or first few verses of the next section, technically, but it's because this 1, 1 through 2, 5 is, again, a microcosm of the whole. In 2, 1 to 5, what we're going to see is immediately after this State of the Union address that is very dark but also has interwoven promises of hope and salvation and restoration, we see a vision of a glorious future in 2, 1 through 5, which don't get too excited because in 2, 6, it gets back to being pretty dark and condemning the people. Uh, but in 2... One, we see again another heading, which no time stamp, again, it's just part of the building argument. Um, and then the first five verses work together to complete this summary of the whole book. So far in one, we have seen God's promises of judgment that will lead to salvation and restoration. And now we will see a promise of a glorious future, which is but a small sampling of what we're going to see in the last few chapters of the book of Isaiah. In two, I'm going to read two, two to five. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord God, to the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. See this glorious vision in 2, 2 to 5. We see a vision that one day the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the highest mountain and all the nations will flow to it to learn his ways and walk in his paths. Out of Zion will, call, will come the law or the teachings of God and he, he will bring justice and peace to all the nations. A couple things of note here about what is going on with this language. We, we see this in uh, verse 2 here about the mountain being established as the highest mountain and lifted up above the hills. We think in, in our modern minds, we think of geography and like lifting up the elevation of a mountain. That could, I guess, be what's going on. But more importantly, what's going on is the ancient religion mindset. In, in the religions of the day, gods were depicted as living on sacred mountains. So to say that the Lord's mountain will be lifted up as the highest mountain to be seen as unique and above all others, that is to say that God is being lifted up and being seen as the true God. 
There is no other God like him. That is an ancient religion way of saying that. And then we also see this talk, I really like in verse 3, where you read, Come, let us go to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach, that he may yara us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the Torah. Well, what's interesting is actually Torah comes from yara. The word for Torah or law derives from the word that means teaching, instruction, to give a path. And that is ultimately what is coming out of Zion is the ways, the teachings, the path, the lifestyle of the Lord. This is, by the way, a sister passage to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission. We see in these verses, we see that the mountain will be raised up and that all nations, all peoples will come to hear the teachings of the Lord. What are the disciples told to do in the Great Commission? Oh, by the way, from the top of a mountain before he's about to ascend up to heaven. They are told to go, baptize, and teach all nations. That you may instruct them in my ways. We see this sister passage here of this call all the way back in Isaiah. Jesus is, I think, purposely picking up on in the Great Commission to his disciples. And I believe that it is an already not yet fulfillment. Because you see a lot of stuff in here that's definitely not fully fulfilled yet. But I think Jesus is picking up on this is where history is headed. It is an already not yet fulfillment of a vision that will be true one day when God will be king forever and will bring perfect justice and peace and all will worship him. So in light of the words of 2.5, O house of Jacob, O people of God, let us walk in the light of the Lord and let us be a light to the nations. The book of Isaiah, from beginning to end, addresses the problem of sin, showing the need for salvation and restoration. Isaiah is called by God to speak to the people of Judah and call attention to their wrongdoings and the judgment that will result if they continue on their paths. But from beginning to end, and even interwoven, we have, as we've seen here in one one to two five, from beginning to end, we see that judgment is not the end of the story. Isaiah also prophesies salvation, restoration, and a glorious future for those who place their trust and their hope in God. The message of Isaiah is ultimately about hope and trust in God. For the early Christians and still for us today, this hopeful picture given by the masterful writing of Isaiah stirs our hearts and points us to the ultimate fulfillment of our hope in Jesus. In the book of Isaiah, the problem of sin is dealt with through judgment that brings purging and salvation to the remnants who believe. Judgment is not the end of the story for Judah. Restoration is This is a foreshadowing of Jesus' work. He, as our Redeemer, our Ransom, remember that little teaser that was given in 127? We're going to get a whole chapter about that later. But he, our Ransom, took God's judgment for our sin so that those who place their faith in his work for us may be purged and delivered from the power of sin and death. Judgment is not the end of the story. Restoration is... Jesus' ministry didn't end at the cross. It didn't end in judgment. He was resurrected and now sits at the hand of the Father interceding for us. The book of Isaiah is 66 chapters 
pointing to this glorious truth of salvation and restoration for those who place their hope in God. The question asked again and again throughout this entire book is in whom do you trust? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this wonderful book of Isaiah. I thank you for the truth that even we see a snapshot of in chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And I pray that as we continue to work through this book that you would open our eyes to the message you have for your people then and your people now. And I pray that we would look to you and nowhere else for our hope. That we would put all of our trust in you. I pray all this in your name. Amen.